EMRC, EMRC, this is County Medic 12 requesting a consult with the University of Maryland. Okay, County 12, switch to Med 4, Med 4. Copy, switching to Med 4. Hey everyone, welcome to the Med4 Podcast. This is James, and today I'm here with a University of Maryland shock trauma physician, Dr. Galvano. Dr. Galvano, thanks for being on with us. Happy to be on. All right, so I was actually kind of excited about this podcast, and I got to thinking, what would be the best question that I could ask you? And I want to pick your brain. So the, the question that I have for you is, if you are the attending physician at shock trauma, you're up in the true and a paramedic walks up to you, pulls you to the side and says, Doc, I'm struggling with success with my airway attempts. I'm not able to get my ET tube. What is the top three things that you would give him, the top three pieces of advice that you would give that medic to be more successful at airway, passing the ET tube? And I'm gonna do the same thing, because I'm gonna gonna come up with my three, and I want you to come up with your three, and I wanna discuss them. I think that's great, and we should do it that, that way exactly because you in the pre-hospital environment much more than I nowadays, and, and me on the receiving end, I think together we can come up with some, uh, some good pearls here. So I'll just express what we see over and over again, and keep in mind at Shock Trauma, we're taking a lot of people, a lot of learners from pulmonary medicine, from emergency medicine, some of our novice anesthesiology residents, and we're taking them, and, our, and of course medics, and taking them from no intubations to, in a month, upwards of 50 or 60 intubations. And we found in some of our work that we've done, published in anesthesiology a couple years ago, that this is a very effective approach. So I will share my experience with that month-long rotation that we do and what we've kind of observed over the years in terms of common things that we see over and over and over again that are easily correctable. So I would say three things on my end. Number one, I think the technique is really important, obviously. You're not gonna get good at this stuff though unless you practice. I will tell you that as a paramedic, even now, uh, I will look for every opportunity to intubate that I can as an attending. Because I'll be honest, most of the time when I'm intubating, it's not an easy airway. I'm usually called in to help salvage uh, the third or fourth attempt. I'm now with video laryngoscopy, we can see what's going on, so we have a pretty good idea and we can make some adjustments, but the takeover rate is far less with that. But the point is, the airways I get to take care of are usually pretty horrific airways. Our CRNAs are phenomenal. Most of our folks that are doing airways in our hospital are absolutely phenomenal. So by the time we get called in to help, it's what we often see is sometimes um, a degradation of technique that your first attempt is your best attempt. So to get that first attempt success rate, I think there's a couple things that we see over and over again that can be done better. One is mouth opening, and we'll talk about positioning. I I think that's a huge one, but just, just some very simple things. Mouth opening, getting your fingers on those molars and getting that mouth open is going to help tremendously. All too often we see a one-handed technique trying to, you know, snake that laryngoscope in there past the teeth, damaging structures, causing trauma. Not getting the mouth open is huge. Once you get the mouth open, if you can, not every patient, it's not gonna be that easy in every patient, you're now gonna be able to get that tongue out of the way, introduce your laryngoscope, and line up your fields of vision and your three visual airway axes, which we'll talk about. I think the other ones that we see before even getting to that, you know, we're, we're talking about intubation. 
But this goes back to something that I know you talk about a lot, Jimmy, as well as I do, and that is airway management. Oh, yeah. Especially with our RSI providers, we know yes. it works. We know it works. Yeah. You know, and, and I won't get too much into that, but I will say before we even get to the point of uh, the techniques that, you know, good preparation is really critical. We see a lot of BVM techniques. I think that's far har a far harder skill to get down well than intubation, quite frankly. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I should That may be a little bit of an extreme statement, but proper BVM technique, which is really a BLS skill, is an ALS skill if it's done correctly. And I can tell you you'll save lives with that. So, you know, you won't even get to these technique issues and if, you, if you're botching that up. So we, we can talk about that again later. But what I'm, what I'm focusing on is the first thing is technique, mouth opening. Holding the scope is critical. Oftentimes we see folks go way up high on the handle and then it becomes a lever device and it's not meant to be a lever device. You have to vector yourself as we talk about. It's muscles that you don't use. You don't exercise like that in the gym. It's not like just doing a curl. It's a whole different set of muscles that you have to train and focus on to get good at it. And it does take some strength to do, but holding the scope low and, and really vectoring up towards the corner of the upper room like we talk about is really a, a technique that I see oftentimes not done well. You don't want to be too horizontal. You don't want to be too vertical. You have to be in just that sweet spot um, all based on the anatomy. The third thing, um, well, this is all related to my number one thing, which is technique. The third part of the technique is the field of vision. The temptation is to get your face as close as you can to that laryngoscope, but that's absolutely the wrong way to do it. You should be bringing your field of vision. Your head should be far away from the patient, not too far, but far enough that you can actually see into the airway. When you focus your vision and you're literally kissing the laryngoscope, ready to get puked on, by the way, because that will happen if you do this enough, then you're not going to be able to your structures. Your field of vision is going to be focused too acutely, too, too myopically, and you're not going to see the whole picture. You have to bring your head back and, and stare down that airway with a little bit of a field of vision. Uh, it's all just basic optics is, is what that is. But we often see folks thinking they're going to get a better vision by sticking their face right into the airway, and that's, a, that's usually a recipe for disaster. One of the reasons the video laryngoscope works very well is because we don't have that problem. The head is now back. You have a better field of vision. There's nothing magical about the laryngoscope. That's a whole separate podcast that we can get oh, into. Yeah. And I, I mean, when you're talking about VL, one of the things I like about that as well is it's a great coaching tool. So as an RSI provider, if, if I'm doing an RSI and an inexperienced provider is on the airway, I can always kind of just creep over and look at the view and coach them through. So you're right. You're not up on the device. You have a better view. You're sitting further back. It's a look around yeah. the curve. It's, it's a lot nicer. Right? So, Yeah. So those are my three things. My first thing is technique. If you're asking me three things to help, technique only comes with practice. Mouth opening, holding the scope the proper way, getting a good field of vision. Those are all components of technique that I think really helps. The second thing I would say in terms of if there's three things that someone were to approach me and ask, what can I do to get better about endotracheal intubation? The second thing is quite frankly suction, which isn't the technique itself, but it's closely related. And so I would harp on that. The mnemonic we use in anesthesiology when we take someone fresh into the OR, never intubated, they're going to have a career within their residency alone where they're going to literally have thousands of intubations. But to start on that day one, 
we use some simple mnemonics. One of them that I always remember is the SOAP mnemonic. Suction, oxygen, airway, P for drugs, pharmacology. Suction, it starts with suction. Anyone at shock trauma knows the first thing we ask for is, is the suction set up? You don't always need it, but when you need it, you really need it. Suction is critical. And to make sure you have it working well, I can't emphasize this enough. I can recall an airway I just did literally four days ago, four days ago in the ICU last weekend. And that was a critical component of what we were trying to do. This was a patient on ECMO, morbidly obese, really difficult patient, potentially difficult airway, lots of bleeding and lots of secretions from basically a pneumonia process that was quite acute. And without that suction, we would have definitely been in big trouble. So suction, suction, suction. Um, I can't emphasize that enough. I think it's absolutely vital and having that ready. So that's number one. And the first thing we'll do when we come out to a trauma bay and ask our rotators and our learners, did you set up suction? That's the first thing I look for. If the suction's not set up, I know they're not ready to do an air because they missed the very first thing that we need to have ready, suction. So I just can't emphasize that enough. That can change your airway management dramatically, not to mention prevention complications like aspiration and everything uh, of the type. So I would say suction is the number two thing that I would strongly emphasize. Don't try to just power through and get your airway and say, ah, I don't really need suction. I kind of see, I see a bubble over the airway. I bet if I pop that when I put my ET tube, no. If there's bubbles and all kinds of other junk in there, suction it out. Just get rid of it and get your field of view. Your first shot is your best shot. Suction is a key component to that. Failure to suction is a big common mistake that we see um, in airway management. So that's number two. The third thing, and then I'm gonna hand it over to you. The third thing is preparation. And there's a lot of keys that go into that. Positioning, which I think we'll talk about in a few minutes. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Let me tell you about one case. Well, preparation is a lot of different things. It's, it's adequate pre-oxygenation. Whole podcast we can do on that topic, which we will. We'll talk about that. But pre-oxygenation, it goes back to the BVM technique. If you're bagging a patient, that should be being done very effectively. If it's not, you're going to set yourself up for a very narrow window of success. Positioning is not always something we have the luxury of doing, especially in trauma patients. They're in a C-spine, precautions, lots of restrictions there. But I, I still think that when you approach an airway, what I mean by preparation is thinking through the entire plan of action. People know at shock trauma, and it would same in the field, I don't get to do a lot of this in the field, but when I do, it's the same thought process. And in fact, I carry a little bag, which is sitting right next to me. And then that bag is not um, a full intubation kit because that stuff is available everywhere. What's in that bag is a crate key, an ability to do a cricothyroidotomy. Um, a supraglottic airway because that's my plan B in most cases. Um, my plan C or D is a surgical airway, but thinking through your plan, going back to that patient I had literally four days ago. So this was a challenging airway. Yes, he was on ECMO, but ECMO was not sustaining him. We had it, The problem was really the airway was complicated because he had a small ET tube in that we had to exchange. Fortunately, I had a really great team. We were all prepared and I briefed it out all the way through surgical airway, even though he's on ECMO. You would think we have a, a cushion on ECMO, but this guy did not have a cushion on ECMO. He needed ventilation in addition to that. Long story short, the brief is our first technique is a tube exchange. If that fails, we're gonna be ready to do direct laryngoscopy. We're gonna have a backup. We're gonna do video laryngoscopy first, but we're gonna use direct laryngoscopy as a backup in case our 
scope gets clouded up, which can happen with blood and secretions. Third plan would be have an LMA ready. We can do a lot of things with an LMA. Number one, it can we can ventilate through it. We can deliver some positive pressure. I say LMA, any superglottic airway is fine, but that's part of your plan and your preparation. And the, the fourth thing is to mark the airway. Mark the airway with a pen. Yes, that's right. I will take a marker out and mark the airway. I'm not afraid to do it. You can wipe it off with some alcohol afterwards. Who cares? Uh, it's not common that we have to get to plan D. But in doing this, this preparation, the planning, this alleviates the stress in the room tremendously, number one. Number two, it helps you be prepared. And I will tell you, it's very rare we get past plan A. We usually have plan A usually works. We're really good. Most of us are pretty good at laryngoscopy. If you do the technique and practice enough and have a lot of experience, good equipment, you're going to be fine. But having that plan in place probably lowers everybody's heart rate in the room by about 10 points and probably lowers their blood pressure by about 20 points. It just alleviates the stress. And I know that doesn't have to do with intubating per se, and that's your question we started the podcast off with, but if you're prepared, then you're less stressed out about it. You know you've got backups. You know you're an airway manager. You're not just an intubator. Um, so having that plan and, and knowing and being confident that you can back yourself up and get out of trouble if you miss that first or second or third attempt, I think just alleviates it. So those are my three, technique, suction, and I think preparation. And I'm ta- when I talk preparation, there's other things, components to that. But what I'm really talking about is preparing for um, alternative airway management techniques that you might need to have. Those are my three big ones. What do you got? So for me, my three are a little bit different. We're on the same page, but a little bit different. As an EMS educator, when EMS clinicians come back and they ask us questions about their airways or they show us their King Vision or UV scope videos, whatever device they're using, they show us their videos, they ask us for advice. The number one thing that I see is suctioning. So I agree with you. Right off the bat, almost every video or every airway that I've been a part of where a provider starts explaining what went wrong, without fail, it's typically vomit or secretions in the airway that need to be cleaned out. Uh, Number one fail of the video laryngoscopy is dipping that video baton into all of that vomit and clouding your screen. So Leading with suction, I think, is vital. There's a technique out there called salad suction-assisted laryngoscopy decontamination. Long story short, put a suction catheter in your hand instead of an ET tube. When you insert your blade, suction and clean everything up, because I think you hit the nail on the head when you said your first attempt is your best attempt. So do everything you can to make that first attempt the best possible attempt. Second thing for me is anatomical approach which I think probably really lies a lot with your technique. It's just another technique. Uh, I, I see these videos where a clinician will sink the bleed as deep as they can, start pulling it back to where they see a view, and it fails them. Uh, breaking of the wrist, they, they will try, like you said, they'll fight and their hands are shaking because they're holding the intubation handle high. They're fighting. It, it shouldn't be. It should be finesse. That's one of the things I take away from Dr. Wendell, a physician in Anne Arundel County. He says that intubation is finesse. It's not brute strength. So if you're struggling, you're doing something wrong. So I, I agree with you, technique. So for me, anatomical approach. Slow entry into the airway, like you talked about, scissoring the airway open. Slow entry into the airway, slowly moving down the tongue, calling out your anatomy, 
and I love epiglottoscopy. Maybe that's because <laughs> I'm a difficult uh, I'm a difficult airway instructor down at Trauma, and, and that's just where epiglottoscopy was kind of born and came from. What, what do you? Okay, you're gonna explain what this means, right? Okay, <laughs> I think so, I know what you mean myself, but I, I want to. This is a very fascinating term. So like. for me, the best way that I can explain epiglottoscopy is airway control of the epiglottis. Mm-hmm. I slowly enter the airway with my laryngoscope blade. I move slowly down the tongue and I control the epiglottis. A lot of us are taught to go as deep as we can or put the tip mm-hmm. of the blade in the vollecula, but what happens when I have a shifted airway? I have a hanging, I have a crushed airway, and it's not perfect. If I find the epiglottis, I know underneath the epiglottis is always going to be the glottic opening. So in a hanging where you have a right shift, if I find the epiglottis, I know where the tube needs to go. I know where I need to introduce my boot. So what you're saying is the epiglottis, and I, 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 I like your term. It's much more scientific than me. I usually just say, and my heart rate, again, drops five points if, if the learner and the intubator is, if I could, they could see the epiglottis or they, they verbalize it to me, yeah. I know we're going to get that airway. <laughs> if you can see the epiglottis, it's your best friend. Yes. You, what you're describing, though, is how to manipulate. That's the technique of laryngoscopy. You're right. It's really manipulation of the epiglottis. Yes. Right? Yeah. I like it's that. Control, it's controlling the epiglottis. And as long as you have that in view, yep. whether it's VL or DL, mm-hmm. I'm happy. Uh, let's say the third thing that I came up with was positioning. I see that a lot in the videos where they're having a hard time introducing their devices like a rigid stylet or a bougie because the angle of the airway, the airway access is off. So getting some sheets under the patient's shoulders, getting that ear to sternal notch alignment, I will throw a picture of ear to sternal notch alignment or the access onto the show notes so that it give you a little bit of a visual. But if you can get the ear to sternal notch alignment, then that's vital. That's vital. And you and I, we, we witnessed this. We took yeah. a group of RSI clinicians down to the shock trauma cadaver lab. Mm-hmm. And one of the cadavers was a heavy set male, a lot of chest weight, a mm-hmm. lot of neck weight, and they struggled yeah. until we got under the yes. shoulders. Till we it was built miraculous. That. Yeah. And that, then it was this. Yeah. Boom. This beautiful. You're view. right. You're so right. Yeah. That was, that was pretty dramatic. And uh, I see in these videos where. If they would have done a little bit of suctioning, if they would have done a little bit of patient alignment, getting that access lined up for better airway management, like you said, having your equipment set up ready to rock and roll, working through good technique, yeah, that that is going to make you more successful. So yeah, my three that I came up with, again, was going to be suction, anatomical approach, followed up with good patient positioning. I think there's a lot of overlap with what we're talking about because I'm talking technique and what you're really talking about is, is the same thing, um, just a more detailed uh, approach. I think one thing though for all learners and when you're first starting to do this stuff, yes, we live in the era of video laryngoscopy, but there's nothing more important than if you're not using a video laryngoscope and, and we don't at Shock Trauma, I, I, you know, it's a breakdown where initially we'll start with video laryngoscopy a lot of times just because it provides situational awareness. I think that's one of the best advantages to the technique. There's really nothing magical about it when you talk about experienced airway uh, um, experts that there, there's no difference actually in the literature that, between regular DL and VL, but nevertheless, the point is knowing your anatomy and verbalizing it. So if you're out on the call and you're doing one of your first intubations or if you haven't intubated in a, 
recently and you don't have a video laryngoscope and you're with a, a supervisor or someone, there you're going to lose that airway because the most experienced person is going to take that over if you're not talking. you got to talk yourself through. It goes back to what you were talking about, epiglottoscopy. Yeah. Uh, you know, you see the epiglottis, then okay, what do we have to do? Do we, do we have to get under it with a bougie? Do we have to change our view? Do we pull back on or go forward slightly? What adjustments do we make to get that epiglottis out of the way and manage that epiglottis so that we can put ourselves on the final approach? But I think what we're both talking about is technique is, is definitely a big part of it. Um, it's There's nothing magical. I really think practice is really important. There's lots oh, yeah. of ways to do that, you know, and we obviously do it in the cadaver lab when we can. We, we Mannequins have gotten a lot better. They're not perfect, but I think at least reinforces the muscle memory, and you can practice a lot of these things. But I would say one thing to emphasize our common thread of kind of the anatomical considerations is, verbalization and communication. So if you're on a scene, your partner's kind of handing you the tube and giving you stuff and, you know, has your suction right next to you. If you, if, you know, everything's got to be within a foot, then talking it through is really important. It also helps the folks around. Like I know in our hospital, you know, our nurses, they like video laryngoscopy because while they don't do innovations, they understand what we're dealing with because they can see it. If they can't see it though, and we're doing a regular laryngoscopy, you've got to verbalize what you're seeing. Even they know, new nurses will know, we start talking epiglottis, okay, they, they're seeing something in the airway, they're getting close, so that, that's a good sign. So I think communication's a big part of that. The other thing quickly to mention is, I do think anybody doing uh, airway intubations, you need to know your anatomy. And it, there's not a lot of structures, but you should be able to call it the epiglottis. You should be able to know the rema glottis is the glottis, that's the beginning of the trachea, that's the dark hole, right below the cord. So I see the glottis. Okay, great. The vocal cords, the false cords, even maybe calling out the retinoids is important. But I think when you start to use this, this is the vernacular of airway anatomy and management. And, and you start talking at that level, again, it provides situational awareness to everybody. And it can help you. I mean, if, if Jimmy's on a call with a brand new person, right? I mean, and, the, yeah. you, and you're talking them through, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? You know, the first, th everyone's going to clam up because they're stressed, but how, yeah. how do you manage that? Do you, you can work them through. If, if you see the epiglottis, you know you're going to get that air, that airway, so right? I actually start coaching them on that. So one of the things that we started doing in the jurisdiction that I work with our RSI clinicians is coaching, coaching through the airway, supporting each other. I agree with you 100%. You have to verbalize in that airway. If anybody's ever intubated with me or been on the on a scene where I'm intubating somebody, I talk, I talk nonstop. And I'm gonna call out all the airways, all the airway structures. I'm gonna say everything that I'm doing. I'm gonna talk about what's set up. Because one, it's just letting everybody know what I'm seeing and what I'm doing, but it's also putting everybody else at ease. We have our plan, we're communicating well. One of my counterparts at MSP and I have multiple conversations about this all the time. We've implemented this type of training into our RSI program, which is crew resource management. It sounds exactly what you're talking about, crew resource mm -hmm. management. And part of that, like you said, is that clinician that's in that airway, if they're not calling out their structures, they're not telling me what they're seeing, they're going to get pushed out of the way. I'm going to end up taking that airway over where video laryngoscopy helps with that because now we both can see it and I can point some things out. But no, I agree with you 100%. You need to verbalize in that airway. That's an absolute must. And the only way that you do that to me is training. And we talked about this a little while ago. 
you've got to train. Every opportunity you get to train. Doing one or two intubations a year is not enough to stay proficient. You have to train in it. So if you're an EMS educator, I encourage you to push your students to call out all the structures when they're in the airway. If you're an intubator and you're not an educator, you're an intubator, call out all the structures every time you train, every time you do the airway. You're on a cardiac arrest, you know, find out who the patient on the scene, or I'm sorry, but find out who the least experienced provider is. Let them get on that airway, coach them through that airway, because every chance we get, we should be making an innovation attempt. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be passing up on that educational component. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. Definitely with you. I mean, that it's been shown over and over again that when we don't, you know, you have to practice. And hey, I can tell you at Anne Arundel, we that's one thing here that I think you guys do phenomenally is to run an RSI program is constant QA, review of every case, and the cornerstone, those education, cadaver labs, didactics, technical reviews, every actually, as you do here, real case scenarios, sign offs, that that's that's the component to having a successful program. So but but and it goes back to, you know, what we're both talking a lot about here is the technique is just something you're going to get with Lots of practice. There's lots of ways to learn it now in 2019 and going going forward. It's not just a mannequin that you have to intubate every three months if you haven't got any tubes in the field. We're way beyond that. So, uh, no, I, I, I agree. I'm with you. That's 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 how you get better at yeah. this stuff. So I hate to do this to you, Doc. We we've reached our time limit. I don't want to go much longer than this because our target is about 20 to 30 minutes on our podcast. So with that, I hope that everybody enjoyed this podcast. You got the top three tips from the one of the best airway gurus down at Shock Trauma. So, Dr. Galvana, thanks again for your insight. Thanks again for being on the podcast. And I look forward to having you on again. Glad to be here.